Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today is just a slight curveball from the way we normally structure these things, and it's actually just a discussion with Dr. Nora Volkow, who's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and Dr. Gail D'Onofrio, who's been on this program before and is a professor at Yale University School of Medicine. And it's a conversation back and forth between them about their experience with treatment of substance use disorder in the time of COVID, as well as a really engaging call for more work and changes in the regulatory environment. So I hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. You know, we all throughout the country have really seen similar things in that our overall volume has decreased. In most places, that's been as much as 40% less than what we generally see. It's really scary because we know that people aren't coming to the ED that have heart attacks or strokes or other symptoms. They're so afraid to come. They're paralyzed that they may get COVID while they're there. On the other hand, we've seen really lots of patients, at least in my area, New England, and Yale New Haven Hospital, we've seen an overwhelming amount of COVID. Um, And at one point, we had, oh, more than 450 patients in our hospital. And most of our patients in the ED were either there or people of interest. And that was overwhelming. Right now, those numbers have gone significantly down. But in Yale New Haven, our numbers of pretty much all of our diseases or all of our presentations have really paralleled that decrease. And we're starting now to come up. Dr. Volkow, can you tell us if you have anything to add or what your experience has been or anything that you've actually been talking with Dr. D'Onofrio offline about? There are certain groups that are much more at risk, greater risk of developing COVID. And if they do get COVID, they have much worse outcomes. Among them are people with substance use disorders, but also we have all become very sensitive about the overrepresentation of minority as it relates to very, very negative outcomes from COVID. So how is your team and you experiencing these big challenges and, and what are you trying to do to address them? So that's totally right. I think in in general, the emergency department is there for everyone. You know, we're open 24-7, 365. We're the only part of the health system that is open at any time for people to come to. We often have people who are disenfranchised, as long as also people who just get access care. But we certainly are there for the entire population of people. What we're seeing now is that we're just having more, really more barriers of care for those people who are disenfranchised. So for example, in the group of substance use disorder, no matter what, we have many homeless populations and it's really difficult to manage the homeless, obviously, in something like COVID. So in all EDs around the country, they've been grappling with this. And as we've moved on, we've been better at it. And recently here in New Haven, they opened up a high school for what we call Shelter One. They put patients in there who were COVID positive that were homeless, and we were working with that. We also know that people who are homeless are people who are disenfranchised are not going to have the proper equipment to do telemedicine. And with the closures of anywhere they might go, like the library or any public facility that where they might be able to use the internet, whatever, we're also closed. So that added another level of barrier that you can't even imagine. And we've done all kinds of innovative things regarding that. Our opiate treatment program, for example, even though for most of their patients, they're giving multiple doses. If someone needed to come in and see the doctor or do a telemedicine, they could come in and use their facility and they would call the doctor. In fact, um, one of our doctors, Dr. Kitchen Trault, says to me, 
she's available at six o'clock in the morning. She might be at home in her bathrobe, but she's taking a call because a patient came in and really needed help. And so the one nurse that was there was able to connect them together. So we've done all different creative things like that, but it is really hard for people that don't have options for telemedicine. Also, people that want to use their phones and the minutes that they have on them to do all this because that's all they have to communicate with their families and other things. So that's another barrier. We have tried all these innovative processes and with the regulations now being really lightning in terms of that we can and have inductions for buprenorphine, for example, over the phone and telemedicine. This is great. We've done that. If patients come to the ED, they don't have to show up at the clinic. They will call them and do it over the phone. So that's great. My friends in Philadelphia, Dr. Jean-Marie Perrone, have actually was able to get a pregnant woman in inducted right on the phone. And she's been following her routinely and doing great where she would never been able to to get that medication in the past. So there is sort of a silver lining in many respects and that we're able to get a lot of people the care that they couldn't get before. And a lot of people who, because of COVID, have no public transportation or anything because most of those are closed they could get take-homes of their methadone. So there was some kind of a silver lining for many in being able to do that. So it pretty much is on both ends. It doesn't seem to be in the middle either. It's working really well or it's not working so well. And, And those patients that need a little bit extra now were able to be opened up a little bit more and getting them into the system and to seeing a human. It's interesting what you're saying, and I basically, to a certain extent, resonates with what we have heard from other investigators that are working with the healthcare system and specifically emergency departments. And one of the points that has been brought up quite consistently is that they have seen a decrease in the number of patients that end up with an overdose in the emergency department. Has that been your uh, experience? And if so, what are your thoughts on what's going on? I understand it's different really all over the country. We are seeing a decrease in everything really that just sort of mirrors our decrease in overall volume. But other places like Ohio have seen an increase in overdoses. And we've certainly seen some alerts come out from health departments, Indiana and Ohio. There were a few more that were seeing massively more overdoses since that they reported in in the early parts of May than they've seen before. It's a problem in some places because maybe they cannot get into treatment. And not every place like New Haven, we have a lot of treatment. There are so many places that don't. In a center in Ohio that we're working with, with one of our implementation science programs, they are giving out one case, almost a month's worth of buprenorphine because they were not able to get people into treatment or people can come back and get refills of buprenorphine. So there are some highlighted places that can do that. But in other areas of the country, we're seeing it. Tennessee, Ohio, Milwaukee have all reported significant increases in overdose. And they're putting that out there. We have actually surveyed the EMS directors, fellowship directors, to try to see what was going on there. And overall, most of them said they were using less, they were getting less calls, that the calls for overdose were less. And that was sort of mirroring their less use of Narcan or Naloxone. Others showed that there was an increase in calls in a few. And we were real concerned because we didn't know if people were not using Naloxone. So there was this big fear 
because there was one state that came out and said they didn't want their pre-hospital providers using the Narcan version, the intranasal, because it was aerosolized and therefore was a greater risk of transmitting COVID. And so our EMS partners that can would give Narcan IM or they would give Narcan even intravenously. But of course, those pre-hospital providers like police or fire they wouldn't have those options. So the question is, are they resuscitating people in the field or not? Because there's been a lot of consideration with not resuscitating people. And there's been a lot of states not even doing autopsies on people because of afraid and not having the protective gear to do that for potential COVID. So there's all these things in the background and it's it's not the same everywhere. There are just people suffering more in certain communities. And because the overdose rates are always delayed, we can't see them now. I can tell you in Connecticut, we've had an increase in overdoses in January, February, and March. And the April, we haven't been able to really get the data quite yet because they're still looking at cases. We'll see that, but it's probably not going to be for another six months. And there are two things that are going in what you are describing. One of them is, of course, have the cases of overdose increase. And we, what we have actually gotten reports of is that, yes, overall, there appears to be across the United States, in most states, an increase in people overdosing. But what they are reporting is that those people that are overdosing are less likely to end up in the emergency department for some of the reasons that you are describing. But the other aspect about it that is too very concerning is for you to have an impact to administer naloxone. Someone has to observe you. So with social distancing, that becomes much less likely. So the ability to revert someone from an overdose is much lower. There's always this disconnect. Should you have to transport a patient that's overdosed in the community to the ED and need another dose of naloxone, but they certainly need the opportunity to access treatment. So we're still going after that. We want people to do treatment. And we're still public messaging about this isolation that we're hoping that people are with somebody when they're using. We've done, you know, simple things like telling people, just call someone and tell them that you are using and have them call you back in a few minutes, all different types of harm reduction methods. So you're not going to be alone when you do overdose and not have that potential. In terms of the emergency department, you know, it really is on us to make sure that people do get into treatment. And as I've said to you before, it just is not optional to see a patient that has such a life-threatening illness, see them, and then let them go. Not everyone will accept treatment, but you can have a conversation with them, express your concern, tell them that you're ready to help them start treatment today, but if not, where they could go if they needed that treatment or even to come back and to keep doing that. And, you know, we've talked about that before. There's nothing that is so life-threatening than opiate use disorder, for example, than anything else that we see and such life-threatening and often a young population. Uh, So we we talk about the quality issues here and how important it is for emergency medicine to step forward and to say, these are real quality and, and CMS quality measures. This has to be it. We do a lot of things for the other major, probably the 
largest thing we see is chest pain in an emergency department. And people that have acute myocardial infarctions have not much more of a mortality rate at one year. It's a little less than 6%, five point something. And yet in that, we have all these quality measures that we do, all these time-sensitive quality measures that we measure and we measure and we measure, the time to, to get to the cath lab, the time to get the medication if your cath lab isn't open, the time to transport people, on and on and on. We're a huge hospital, so we might have 20 or 30 a month. Most places probably have 10 a month. And yet you have that many people with substance use disorder a day that you see. And yet we have no specific guidelines that are required that we should do. And that is just not acceptable. No, I resonate enormously with that recommendation that you have, that we need to have protocols with high quality control. And I think that as you highlight, more than 5% of people with an opioid disorder that visited an emergency department will die. And so you had them in the emergency department, did not do anything, and the person died. And you are discussing about, well, we don't tolerate that for a myocardial infarct, so we have a protocol and we hospitalize. Here, people are thrown out on the streets when there are medications that can protect them from overdose with a large effect size. So I think that that's why very much, I mean, in terms of where we are right now with this emergency, with COVID and opioid epidemic, is the opportunity to create those guidelines. So what are the next steps? What would you like to happen and how to make it happen? One is really clear. We need to have certain regulations made. One of the biggest things that we've seen during COVID that's been another silver lining is that we're now allowed to give the waiver courses over Zoom, which we couldn't do before. So we have had these ex-waivers in my colleagues here, uh, Dr. Hawk, myself, and Dr. Herring. We've done three now and probably have trained over 200 emergency physicians or providers in just the last month. There's other emergency physicians doing this same similar thing. And that's a four-hour course. We really don't need that X waiver, as we've seen. You know, we need to X the X waiver, right? It's an incredible barrier that doesn't need to exist. Education does need to exist. And I would argue that that four hours was well used. But in addition to that, they have to take four more hours And then they have to be able to know how to navigate the whole system where you put all this information in, you send it along to, you know, the DA that you get your number back. It's just way too much. We find that we have to have our research assistant almost all the time walking through doctors how to do that. They said, I did the training, but I never got my X waiver. And they said, well, did you do this? Did you do this? Oh, no, I didn't know I had to do that. So it's taking time and time um, and energy. And we just don't need that. Is there need of more evidence or based on the data that we currently have that shows such a large effect of medications like buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, is there anything else that is needed uh, to document how powerful these treatments are, specifically in an emergency department setting? In my opinion, no. But you you often say that I quote you all the time when you say, (laughs) okay, maybe 50% are in treatment at, you know, six months, but without it, only 5% are, right? What, what do you need to know? We already know that if you're not in treatment, you die, right? We already know 5% are going to die in one year. We already know a huge amount are going to die within a month, leaving a facility of some kind of controlled environment, whether that's rehab or jail. We already have all that data. We have the data that it works. 
I mean, in terms of the ED, that's a venue where we're using it, but there's enough information that opiate agonist treatment works. We don't need to, we don't need to replace that. We don't need to do any more ED studies except feasibility studies and implementation, how we implement it, nothing's easy to implement, but we don't need to know that it works. We know that it works. And you also had in your commentary something that I think is too very, very important and says give feedback to the providers of what happens to their patients, because that is one of the most effective ways of changing practices. Yes, we found that actually from doing a tremendous amount of focus groups in multiple cities, that one of the best things that we can do is to give that person a positive. Because remember, in emergency department, all we see are the bad things. We only see people coming back. We don't see people we don't see again. So the best thing you can do, and we try to do this, is to have somebody follow that person and just ask whether they showed up at the referral site or if you can get permission to call the patient afterwards. We, we Many of us have nurses that follow up patients for all kinds of problems. In COVID, for example, we call people all the time. If we sent them for testing, we just want to make sure that they're doing okay. This is the same thing. We can call up and ask somebody, did you get to your treatment? What were the problems? How can I help you? And we need to do that. And I see no reason why we, we can't expect that we do that. And also the issue that you commented upon, which I think is an extraordinary opportunity to do the follow-up, is telehealth. I mean, provided, of course, that the patients have access to it. But if they do, that's an extraordinary resource that you have to actually follow their outcomes. As people are dying from overdoses, I mean, it is clear in our brain that some of them may be intentional. We don't know exactly what's the level of intentionality, but we do know that some of them do qualify as suicides, even though they die by, by an opioid overdose. And they are, though they are not scored as suicides. So the concept is with COVID and the social distancing, We've also seen concerns of increases in depression, anxiety, and hopelessness that, of course, you mix in with opioid use disorders, and you really have a very, very bad combination. So what have you seen in the emergency department, and what are you doing to ensure that you are screening and that you are doing this very difficult-to-treat situation, but crucial not to neglect? Well, you're right. There's a huge overlap between severe depression and suicidality and using. And it's hard to tease that all apart. And I think for emergency physicians, their biggest concern is that there's not enough providers out there for mental health. And this is true everywhere around the country that there aren't. Here in New Haven, I can just say about our hospital, we also had a pretty large drop in our people who are requesting help. We have a, an emergency department for psychiatric illness right embedded in our main ED. And we have full-time um, psychiatrists who are there. And they have reported that they've seen um, a market drop, like almost 26% drop in patients that are coming through there. And we're worried about that because in the face of COVID, where there's a lot of despair and a lot of reasons to be worse off than two months ago, we're extremely nervous about that. We don't know where they're going and we're kind of reaching out to the community to make sure they know we're open. In the ED, we do ask everyone some questions about suicide. At least we do here. We are part of the zero suicide group and we will ask questions. Some people won't answer them accurately and then some people will and then we are really lucky because we have psychiatry here to go through a bunch of questions with them to make sure that do they need extra care? Do they need to be hospitalized or can they go home with services? 
but it's really hard to find services. I just have to tell you that over all the country, it's not easy to find outpatients. It's even harder, by the way, when you have insurance here than when you don't have insurance. The answer is really difficult. It's hard to tease that out from an emergency point of view. And then once you do, and you feel like, well, they could do with outpatient counseling and help, it's it's really hard to find that. I'm hoping with all this new technology, maybe we can do some more group things outside, some Zoom things. Maybe we'll be able to come up with some innovations in uh, having more people access mental health treatment. And indeed, that has happened. And for once, it's much easier to get reimbursed if you are a physician and you're providing telehealth, including behavioral intervention or a psychiatric assessment and follow up. So here is another example about the changes that have helped medicine through COVID by making telehealth so much more accessible. It's relatively new, so we need to understand how to optimally utilize it. I do want to give you an opportunity, uh, Gail, to basically bring up something that you feel is important that I may have not asked or that you want uh, the message to transpire. I think really in my final thing is that it's not only, by the way, opiates that we're seeing. We are seeing a lot of alcohol use disorder a tremendous amount, both in the emergency department and patients that are getting admitted to the hospital with COVID-19. That's been what some people are using to deal with stress and accentuating other problems. So the ED is there for recognizing all kinds of substance use disorder. And it's on us to start with an initial treatment. And some of that is just the conversation that we have. We try to teach this to everybody. We have something we call the brief negotiation interview, but it's just a conversation with our patients, meeting them where they are, just asking them, first of all, permission to talk about it then what they think about it, what we, what our feedback is, and then coming to some kind of a plan with them. And it's much better to do that. And if you talk to people like they're real people, you can move on. And so this has to be part of our armamentarium. It just has to be incorporated into our care. And uh, we hope that some of these new changes will persist. We'll hope we can get rid of that X waiver, um, at least for emergency physicians. We hope that we will continue to have places to send people and use telemedicine. We hope that methadone can be given more. And we really have to revise that whole system because for many people, this is working much better. They actually can have a job if they can. They can actually get to their places that they need to get to instead of spending the whole day trying to get their methadone. So we need to redo that. And and the, just the general message is time is up, right? Time is up. We need to incorporate these quality measures into our care. And it's just not optional anymore. I hope you enjoyed that refreshing change of pace as far as how we structure these episodes. We've come to the end of our most recent series on opiate and substance use disorder, and we're going to go back to a couple episodes about stroke that were recorded in the midst of all of this and and hopefully will will contribute to what we had done a couple months ago. So we'll hopefully keep these coming out just about once a week. I'm about to head on paternity leave, so if suddenly you don't hear me for a few weeks, that's exactly what's happening. We've had another baby show up. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of our ASAP Equal series at the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com. You can also find them at the ASEP website under www.acep.org backslash equal. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.